Hello. 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 And welcome to Pioneers Post podcast. Social enterprise stories and conversations from across the world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fit for the Future, a Pioneers Post podcast created and co-hosted with our partners at Buzzagod Accountants. My name is Tim West, and this is my co-host, Eddie Finch. Hello. This is Fit for the Future, where the Buzzacott and Pioneers Post teams will meet some of the stars of social enterprise and mission-driven businesses and explore what it means to build a healthy, resilient, sustainable organisation that's able to do good and well at the same time. Hello and welcome to the Fit for the Future podcast with me, Tim West, and Eddie Finch, my co-host from Buzzacott. Eddie, hello. Hi, Tim. And uh, welcome our two guests today, Joe Seddon from Zero Gravity. Joe, hello. Great to be on the podcast. And Ariana Alexander Sefra from Spoke World. Hi, Ariana. Hi, Tim. Welcome to both of you. Uh, before I ask you both to explain a little bit about your organisations and where you've come from and your startup journeys, we've invited both of you on, on board the podcast because. You're both winners of our NatWest SE100 awards. Spoke World won our Trailblazing Newcomer Award and Zero Gravity came second. And Joe Seddon from Zero Gravity also won our Leadership Award. Um, and so we were we were both really impressed with you as relatively young social businesses um, and both relatively young and very successful founders. Um, and Eddie, I, I wanted you to reflect on um, what we thought about both of these organisations. It's quite unusual, isn't it, that that um, you you get two organisations who come along at once who are quite so young and impressive. Yeah, and, and I think as as we said on the night, one of the great things this year was to have two businesses that are so, um, well, I guess, dynamic and and so much like uh, startups that you'd see. In, in other sort of sectors. So, so both using technology, both getting out and uh, engaging in ways that are, are very fresh, uh, but, but addressing deep social issues, which uh, we were really, really pleased to see. And I think yeah. uh, for both organisations, it was very difficult to judge that category. Um, so it was good that Joe was able to come in on the leaders as well, because it was a very yeah. tight uh, category this year. So, uh, without further ado, then Ariana, welcome. Hi. So, look, tell us about Spoke World. Um, I haven't given our audience any clue <laughs> what on earth it is yet. Um, I did go. I did go and actually join it. So I've got. A, I've signed up to it, and I've done some of the sort of meditation and stuff. And I, I, I actually found it really interesting. But tell us, um, tell us what it is and why it is. Of course. So at Spoke, we are an award-winning app that makes listening to, well, looking after your mind as easy as listening to your favourite music. So we've spent the last couple of years doing two things. Firstly, we've pioneered this new category of wellness audio or category of music that bakes proven mental health tools into music, lyricism, spoken word by some of the UK's best musicians. And then all of this kind of audio is delivered in a deeply personalised way through our system. So we meet young people where they're at with themes like, you know, sleep and heartbreak and money stress and career worries yeah. and, you know, focus and creativity and all of these types of sort of themes. And our objective is to deliver 
clinically effective mental health tools and mental health science through a culturally relevant medium, which is music. This all started uh, about three years ago. Um, this is my second business. I used to work in the wellness industry. I spent many years running a big mm. wellness company in London and in New York. Um, and I noticed that in that field, I kept say, seeing the same types of people again and again. It was a typically older female middle class crowd across not just live events, but if you look at all the mainstream mental wellness apps, Calm Headspace, they really only serve one or two demographics. In 2017, my younger brother sadly lost his best friend to suicide. Within a year, two friends also lost brothers to suicide. Mm. And I suddenly became very hyper aware of this epidemic that we're living in. There is a male mental health epidemic, but actually youth mental health in general has got worse and worse over the past 25 years or so. And I mean, there's hundreds of stats I could pull out, but I'm sure, you know, the listeners would know a lot of them. It's, you know, we're, we're, this is the defining public health crisis of our time. But then mm. you look at mental wellness tools, which have the ability to prevent crisis, help you metabolize emotion, and they all look, sound, and feel very similar. They're, very, they're either clinical or they're yogi, and nearly none attract a predominantly young and predominantly male audience. So, so that's why we started it and, and what we are. Okay, so you clearly you, you started out with a very clear mission and, and some really strong personal experience behind that mission. What made you set it up as a as a social enterprise? I mean, I, I guess there's an obvious mission there, which often makes people set things up in, in, a, in a sort of social business structure. Um, but what what made you think? Well, I, I need to I need to set it up as a social purpose business with a different kind of structure. So I, I'm going to be honest. I am a very strong believer in the that every business should be putting yeah. their impact mission into their articles of association. Um, you know, we're part of the Better Business Act. All of our investors are all impact investors. I mean, I take quite a, um, I don't want to say the word, not extreme, but I believe very strongly that if you're not a business serving a social or an environmental or some kind of purpose that does good, then I kind yeah. of don't really know what you're doing. So uh, that's something that's at our core, really. And the reason why we, I mean, even, you know, the reason why we became a social enterprise and not sort of a charity or a charitable um, or a nonprofit is because I see the big players that are hmm. have global mass momentum are able to connect with millions Billions and billions of people worldwide. And yeah. these businesses, you know, we I, I think we can do it better. I think we can do it with the people who are culturally able to connect with the world's hardest to reach people all over the world. And I don't think we could grow that big and that fast um, unless we were a um yeah, a social enterprise rather than a, a charity. Interesting. Uh, and where are you now? Where wh what was it like in year one? Where are you now in terms of your figures? Um, yeah, so we are in year two. Uh, yeah. We launched on the App Store um, just over a year and a half ago on our beta. Um, yeah. And we were free, completely free for a whole year. And then about six months ago, we put our paywall in. Um, so we're just kind of um, testing out what that bar is. Uh, we offer spoke completely free to any therapeutic mm -hmm. body, to NHS bodies, um, any 
absolutely any school, any charity, um, without <laughs> without exception, really. Um, yeah. But then we also do major partnerships with really great brands, um, with different communities. We do partnerships with corporates as well. Um, so right now, where we are is we have validated that there is this market out there that wants this so our audience are 67 percent are under age 28 we have a median age of 22 20 percent of our audience is under is under 20 so we're actually looking ahead to gen alpha at the moment and what we're going to do over the next few years 45 percent of our app users are male now that is that is unheard of in the mental wellness space completely unheard of and our yeah. subscribers and that people who do subscribe pay 4.99 a month we have a 74% retention at month 6 so once people sort of start using spoke and get you know mm. and actually if it works for you it really works for you right. so that's sort of where we're at we've validated that there is a market that wants this we've built this MVP that you've had a little play with um, and it is MVP one there's so much more we need to do Uh, MVP means minimal viable product it's essentially our first working product so we took all of our main learnings from nearly a thousand different people uh, that we tested and we've built something that actually works Um, and then but we've got so much more we need to do uh, over the next couple of years to make the experience deeper, better, more personalized, um, address more people's needs, etc. Um, and yeah, so we've built the product and yeah, we've proven that our users, um, yeah, enjoy it and they're benefiting from it. We did a clinical study last year, which is quite rare for a startup of our stage to mm. do a clinical study. Um, and we've done a few research papers as well. Um, and then, yeah, looking into the future, we are, we're actually currently fundraising. So we're raising our next round um, right now. So I'm looking, I'm going to be closing that in the next few months. So that, that was, um, Really interesting about where you are with the the product and and the new um, developments that will be coming down the track. You met, you mentioned financing and that your initial funders were all impact uh, investors, and you're in your second round now. Is is that the same story for the second round? Have, have you found uh, enough impact investors to fund that? And and are they looking for different outcomes this time round? Is has it been trickier? Well, I mean, it is trickier, obviously, as we, you know, as we go on, it, it always gets a little bit trickier because everyone's looking for a bit more in terms of the metrics, um, but which is fine. You know, we've got about a million um, pre-committed at the moment. We're still looking for our lead. Um, I am targeting impact funds. Our ideal would be to be led by a big impact fund. But the truth is, we're going to have we're going to have to see. Um, uh, you know, we are also speaking with sort of, consu- I guess, consumer funds as well. Um, I've noticed that in the US, they shy away from using the words impact <laughs> um and that's i think this is maybe a cultural thing they're maybe not it's, it's not the same in the us as it is in europe um, and that's something i kind of struggle with a little bit but our goal is to be led by um, a, a global impact fund you, you were saying that the, that the language you have to use is different in the states so i was just wondering <laughs> are, are the funders mostly in the states that you're talking to now uh, no actually no not mostly i think we so most of the funds we're speaking with are in europe but mm. i actually am off to new york next week um i got onto the government's female founder tech trade mission so i'm meeting uh, a number of sort of vcs and 
great people out there. Mm. Um, the last time I was out there last year fundraising, and we actually, um, we've been invested in by Goodwater Capital, which is one of the US's biggest impact funds. It's a $3 billion impact fund. A focused fund and, and they are great um, but there are very few that actively call themselves an impact fund. I, I guess I'm, I'm quite interested in the, the, the global development of the the product as much as mm-hmm. anything and, and now because yeah. I, I guess there's a very British angle to the kind of cultural input you've had so mm-hmm. far but how, how that translates across across the pond and, and wider yeah, no, that's a that's a brilliant question. So uh, we currently, I mean, if you listen to the app, um, and I know Tim, you've um, had a listen already, you might notice that yep. it really is the sound of London, the mm. voices, the music, um, the music genres. It feels like London, and that was intentional because we started mm. here. We are actually born and bred London. We're a London-based team. We all are from here, um, and because of that, the predominant majority of our audience is based in London and we have a few kind of regional we've actually got about 11% international in all different countries but really we're mostly in London so we believe very strongly in this cultural resonance piece it's a big part of our philosophy as we expand into new cities and new territories we work with a family of artists so this is a family of voices producers instrumentalists that can really capture that and deliver that cultural uh that integrity to the sound of what people listen to in that space so we do plan to launch internationally and as we do that we're going to do that authentically with new families of artists that we bring on board however the sound of london uh, is very very popular worldwide you know, British music, It you know, we've got a very big US listenership already because, mm. you know, it, it's been very popular for many years. Yeah. So that's an interesting idea then, that the, the, the finance and the, the cultural side, you'll, you'll need to implant that sensitively to different markets as, as you move around. But the, I guess the science is the same wherever you go. The science is the same. There's there might be slight differences. So we do work with um, science like psychologists who um, mm. understand a particular region. We we don't just kind of copy paste apps everything. You know, really mental health and emotional health is so connected with our feelings of identity, our feelings of home, and what makes us feel grounded. So getting that right is it's and like you said it's very important to be sensitive to that Mm. we we very strongly believe that in order to heal and truly heal mental health tools need to sit less in the kind of purely intellectual space and more in the emotive space so emotions can metabolize music is the perfect medium to do this and that's why we work with music and we work with cultural leaders Mm. So, yeah, doing that properly is paramount. So that's a lot of plate spinning um, as, as you grow, I guess. As the, it seems to be the theme. You've got a lot of d- different it, you need to focus on at the same time. It is. But I also believe, and there's some theory around this, that some of the most impact is created between two seemingly opposing forces. So there's, there is a tension. There is always this tension and plate spinning. But in the gaps, there are so many people who are currently missed. And that's, that's a big part of it. It takes a while to get to the point where you, you, you've got 
while we're there now and we can fund the growth ourselves, uh, how far away do you feel that that stage might be? We're not far away. We're not far away. So we are, we've spent the last two years building and, and we, we're a very heavy product team. So we have built all of this audio. We've built this system complemented by machine learning. There's some AI aspects as well. This personalization system, you know, with, and I, there's a, I do a lot of the science. So I've done a lot of research in this space, published multiple um, research papers. Um, you know, there's, so between us, we've created something that really, really, really works. Um, our next stage is, now that we've got something that works, obviously we need to deepen that, but our next stage is to grow, pull more people in, build those partnerships, you know, build the right kind of relationships so we can keep on growing um, across England for the next year and a half and then into outer regions. So we're not far away at all, but we're probably about sort of, I guess if you call it, I don't know, break-even points, um, we're about two years away. In terms of the... The sort of uh, the the size of the um, investments that you're going for, um, what have you managed to pull in so far? I know there'll be kind of commercial sensitivities, and you won't be able to give exact figures. But it, what what does it need? What has it taken so far to build your business? And what do you think you need over the next couple of years then? Um, I mean, people can actually see it online that we've had a few articles written about us. So far, Mm. we've raised £1.6 million sterling. Really, we've used this to build out the technology, to build out the content, um, to really deepen the science in the area, build a lot of research. We've done a lot of research and development in this space. There isn't much research out there that genuinely shows this efficacy between mental health and music um and 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 because of because there's not much research out there there's not much innovation in that space and that's another thing that uh we've we've seen and so that's why solutions tend to all kind of look and feel the same because all the research is in the same place uh, so that's sort of what we've done so far. Um, our next round of finance is going to be about is well to be determined, but um, we're 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 kind of aiming for a lot higher than that. Yeah, and is that all equity? Was it a mix of things? I mean, if you if you pulled in debt and grants and equity and whatever you can get hold of, a mixture of equity and um, and grants. Yes. Right. Right. So no debt. No debt, not no debt. Okay, that's interesting because I guess most of British impact investment is structured as debt finance, whereas actually, if you go to the US or somewhere, it's you're far more likely to get equity. But it's quite difficult to get equity for social businesses in the UK. I think, isn't it? In terms of your your story, Joe, let's move on to the the growth story of um, zero gravity. It would be great to understand whether some of what Ariana's talking about, I mean, obviously she works in an area where there's a, a young demographic. You're you're doing something with a really strong mission for young people. But I'm really interested in understanding how you've been able to grow, where you've come from and gone to over the last couple of years, and, and what kind of investment you've pulled in to support you to do that. Uh, whirlwind's journey to be honest over the past five years i started zero gravity from my bedroom yeah. back in the day um I, I grew up as a in a single parent family in a small town in west yorkshire 
yeah. made a journey to Oxford University. And, and once I graduated, I knew I wanted to make a difference. But like a lot of young people from socially mobile backgrounds, I didn't have a, a network of entrepreneurs or even professionals around me. So I had no choice other than to bootstrap the business from my bedroom mm. in order to get going. And I think it's actually one of the unspoken problems in the UK, which is we talk so much about the absence of social mobility in universities and in elite careers, but no one really talks about the absence of social mobility in the entrepreneurship space. There's 75% yeah. of founders are from those affluent backgrounds. So I, I face a lot of those challenges, you know, trying to bootstrap a business from a bedroom without access to friends and family funding, you know, that rich yeah. uncle who you can just give a call and ask for some investment. And it was a real struggle. And the only way I was able to get past that and, and get to where we are today, where we've risen, uh, raised £4 million of investment, is I, I built a network. I had to accept the system is the way it is. I had to yeah. play the system from the inside. And, and that meant they're trying to find high net worth investors, angel investors, many of them based in central London, who are willing to take a risk on an unproven entity, a, a 21-year-old entrepreneur as I was back in the day. And I think that's a massive challenge, but also it, it's given me an insight now into how the system works and, and how you know, young people from backgrounds similar to mine can actually navigate it. So you've raised four million so far, is and that's been again as equity has it, or is that a mixture? Exclusively of equity. I think one of the big issues in the kind of social mobility sector is there isn't a kind of go-to grant pot you can mm. tap into. I think when it comes to kind of the E in the SG and sort of climate and sustainability, there's lots of pre-existing grant funding yeah. out there, but a lot of social sectors kind of fall between the cracks of private and government funding. And I, I think the lack of the clear pots to tap into for social entrepreneurs leads to a massive funding gap in the market. And the only way I was able to overcome that was through equity mm. rather than grant investment. So I had to network relentlessly to try and find people who were passionate about this mission. And had it not been for that networking, it would have been very difficult to get very far due to the absence of obvious pots to tap into. That's an interesting reflection because they're, there are organisations who promote themselves as being there to to plug the gaps and to, to be that pot of, of money. And, and I guess um, what you're saying is that they're not reaching the audiences they should be or, or that they're ineffective at what they do, so they're not actually providing what you really need. When it comes to kind of social enterprises and mission-driven businesses – between the cracks a little bit because on the one side you've got sort of traditional vc funding for kind of high growth high scale high risk companies and the other side you've got kind of traditional charity finance for organizations which are incorporated as a charity who can raise money for restricted projects or core funding if you're in the middle of that you kind of get lost on on both sides like you're you're you're, you're not a charity so you can't raise the charity funding and then if you don't sort of have the obvious VC model, you can't access that funding either. So I think companies that really want to grow and scale their social impact, and unless you can find that commercial model that dips you into the VC funding pot, or you decide actually the social enterprise route isn't going to work and you convert into a charity, you cannot get access to the other funding pot. I think it's really, really difficult. So mm. I think those are the two fundamental challenges I had to navigate. One was being a socially mobile founder and not having a network. And the second was starting a mission-driven business without obvious kind of pots to tap into. 
Yeah, and that's that's a tough part, and, and and quite often, I mean, we in our in our world and, and a lot of our clients are charities that are business like, but but there's a sort of mission first and finance first kind of investors, and it sounds like neither of those um, were were right for you at that time. Then I, I never wanted to run a, a charity. I always wanted to run yeah. a business because I, I was a passionate believer that social mobility. Yes, it's a clearly an issue about social justice and equality but it's also one of talent and productivity and i thought if i can get this business to scale there is a very clear commercial model that can make it work but like lots of startups there's a certain amount of r&d that you need to do to unlock that model and i I think currently because that r&d funding isn't clearly accessible for social entrepreneurs we're missing out on so many of these businesses every year and and my kind of advice to both sides of that kind of spectrum would be, I think the VC funders need to look more closely at the social impact they're creating, because I think that's something that a lot of their LPs care about. But on the other hand, I think some of those charity foundation funders also need to get less religious and dogmatic about funding (laughs) charities. I, I think they need to accept that there is no bad thing about some of their grant funding leading to commercial gain down the track. It also creates a load of social impact as well. I think social enterprises often have the ability to create more social impact in the long term than charities. So I think this kind of holier-than-thou mentality or this uber-risk-averse mentality in the charity sector also needs to be reformed and there needs to be funding there for, for private businesses that have a very clear, enshrined social purpose and a model with which to scale it. Agreed. Let's um, let's get into uh, your startup journey, Joe. And um, first of all, just tell us about Zero Gravity. What is it? Um, what does it do? Um, what's its journey been like so far? Zero Gravity, that talent is everywhere, opportunity is not, and we want to be the business to change that. And I believe the way we change that is through the power of technology. I think the story of the past 40 years has been huge progress and disruption driven by technological innovation. Unfortunately, most of the benefits, I think, have been captured by shareholders rather than wider society. I think this is a real opportunity now to think, how do we create tech-driven growth that can really solve some of the most fundamental social challenges that we face across the world. And one of those challenges, how do you break that link between background and opportunity? How do we live in a society where our universities look represented in the country, our employers look represented in the country, and indeed our politicians do as well? And that's the problem that Zero Gravity is trying to solve. And the way we do that is we power students from low opportunity backgrounds into top universities and careers. We identify them when they're first at school using a mixture of big data and algorithms to pinpoint those people at state schools across the country who have all the potential, but not necessarily the resources to break into these elite institutions. And then through our platform, they can access guidance at any time, anywhere, through their mobile phone, whether it's incredible mentors, masterclass content, a community of like-minded peers. And the kind of magic behind the business is that we get students to engage on a daily basis and take them on that journey of just you know, getting 1% better every week. You know, that compounding effect that people speak about so much when it comes to finance. 
applying that to personal development. And when you're working with people with such kind of raw talent and resilience as our audience, it's remarkable what they can achieve. You know, we've supported over 8,000 students from low-income backgrounds now into top universities. But this is just a start for us. And we, we want to be the sort of game-changing business when it comes to access to opportunity, not just in the UK, but hopefully one day across the globe as well. And what's your business model? How, who pays you and how does that work? It's completely free at the point of use. You know, we work with people from low-opportunity backgrounds who can't afford to pay. So we didn't want to create any barrier to entry for students. So the way we monetize is we work with employers and universities who have really clear strategic priorities to get more young people from these backgrounds into their institutions. And indeed, they're increasingly being regulated on this now as well. The Office for Students in the UK regulates universities and can deprive them of access to tuition fee income if they don't look representative of the country. And employers now under massive pressure from investors, from kind of ESG criteria, and, and, and other regulatory forms, whether it's now starting to measure class pay gaps, to really start taking this issue seriously rather than looking at it in a tokenistic way. Hmm. So, so we charge those institutions who use our platform to drive their social mobility agendas, They're getting more students from low opportunity backgrounds into their universities and careers. And are they open to doing that, do you find? Years ago... This was probably a tokenistic issue. You know, people felt they had to do something from an optics perspective, but didn't necessarily see the commercial value of mm. it or were even sceptical that it wouldn't have a commercial impact on their business. I think times have changed. A lot of the businesses that we work with have got internal data now showing that their most high-performing employees are those ones who originally came from low-opportunity backgrounds. And in many ways, that shouldn't be surprising because – if you've made it from a low opportunity background into an elite institution, you've probably got to have a lot of raw talent, resilience, determination, hard work in order to do that. So these employers now have a sort of commercial imperative as well as a social imperative to hire as many of these people as possible. And that's what we're trying to facilitate for them. Now, indeed, one of our first corporate clients was KPMG, who was the first big business in the UK to put an explicit target on hiring people from working class backgrounds. They want 30% of their employees to be from working class backgrounds by 2030. And so we're the service provider actually making that ambition a reality. They're connecting them with this audience. They're giving them the data to hire intelligently. They're actually upskilling people from these backgrounds to actually get them through these very difficult, complex recruitment processes, which if you don't have access to a big professional network, the inside track and resources can be really, really difficult to get to the end of. Hello, I'm Tim West, founding editor of Pioneers Post, and I'm interrupting today's podcast for 30 seconds to let you know that you can get access to thousands more resources, interviews and stories on pioneerspost.com as a subscriber. Subscribing is a really important way that you can support us. As a social enterprise ourselves, we rely on the income from subscriptions so we can produce more stories that help our growing global community of purpose-driven social entrepreneurs and impact investors to do good business better. So please take a moment to find out more at pioneerspost.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the podcast. Now, Eddie, you were um, the judge in our NatWest SE100 Awards who... I think did the due diligence on um, on Joe and his company, and you were you were really impressed. Obviously, 
um, by what zero gravity was doing in in a very sort of unusual way. I mean, zero gravity seemed to all the judges, I think, to be succeeding in quite a, a different way from a lot of social enterprises. Um, do you want to just share some of those thoughts? The theme of the, of the two organisations, really, that they are much more like in the way they've approached their their growth and their plans, uh, a, a sort of, I was going to say traditional tech startup, it's hardly a traditional market, but you know what I mean, um, is is very different. I, I think certainly we see a lot of organisations involved in things like tutoring and you say tokenistic, a lot of them are, are in fact probably counterproductive because it's all taking the kids who are already doing reasonably well and, and enabling them to do even better. So I think that the way that you approached reaching out to bring people in and, and finding the people that, that would benefit from the support uh, the the way that the I mean the people I spoke to that the, the business is growing the products deepening um, we talked with some of them about uh, you mentioned earlier some of the stuff around entrepreneurship and startups that opportunities mm-hmm. shouldn't just necessarily be eventually about one linear path through a good university to a top employer there are all those opportunities that you've got much more access to and you mentioned yourself um, if you come from an affluent background and, and I think that the way that you've gone about building the business uh, and bit by bit building on more and more um, resource and a, and a longer and longer chain of engagement with people just struck us as being as, as being very powerful and it's, it's a massive amount you've achieved in a relatively short space of time but there's there's a lot further you can go both within the UK, but also, as you've mentioned, uh, probably been talking internationally. So I, I think the scale of the ambition of, of both the organisations we're talking to today is way beyond what we've seen mm. in previous years in this trailblazer category. And and the issues we've talked about around access to capital for these kinds of businesses with that kind of vision is, is a real problem um, in, in the way the UK economy and the global economy works. Um, but you've both shown a way to crack it. Um, and I think it would be interesting to hear a bit about where you are as a, as a business now and what, what the next steps are um, that you're, you're, you're thinking of. Yeah, what, what is your growth plan? Because, you, Joe, you've got, you mentioned a figure of 8,000 young people that you've supported so far. That's over a period of how many years? So where, where are you at in terms of the, the um, development of the organisation so far? Yeah, it's a, we're looking for exponential growth, not incremental growth. So in that way, we are more similar, I suppose, to a kind of traditional tech startup, VC-funded mm. organization. And that was a deliberate choice because I thought this social problem was only possible to solve if you did it at scale. Now you mm. needed to reach students across all four corners of the UK, the hundreds of thousands of them, not just hundreds of them. And I believed the scale and engagement which technology could bring was the secret source to, to do that. And, and you're right, Eddie, you, know, you walk into the Zero Gravity office, the culture probably feels very different to what you'd expect from a social enterprise, whether it's the kind of like data dashboards across the room or the fact that most of our team sort of work in software engineering and products, and we don't really have program managers or kind of some of the traditional employee types that you might see in a a typical education social enterprise. So it is a little bit different, but I think that's a, a good thing. I, I don't see it as a kind of trade-off versus the social impact. I actually think some of these tech disciplines of like looking really deeply at 
data and how you can use it to inform what you're doing, but also hold your feet to the fire on the impact is a, is a positive thing to do. So the future for us, hopefully, is exponential growth, not linear growth. You know, this year, we've got over 10,000 students from low opportunity backgrounds applying to university through our platform. So that, that's more students this year than we had in all the previous years combined who've got into top universities. Um, and we don't want to stop stop there. So I hope in a couple of years' time, we'll be talking about you know, 50,000 students per year. And that's all made possible by the kind of the business model and the unit, unit economics that you no know, technology can can deliver. And I think the, the other thing that we've done as well is rather than work with students at one point in the journey, you know, we're now supporting students into careers as well. Mm-hmm. So we're not just working with students between the age of 16 to 18. We're taking them on that longer journey you know, from the age of 18 to 21. So we want to be the business that stays with them and helps them through this seminal period in their life. And again, I think technology makes that possible because if your intervention is a kind of physical intervention that happens at a particular time and a particular place, it's very difficult to continuously support people who are geographically mobile. They might move from where they grew up to a different part of the country to go to university and in a different city for a career. Whilst if you're a tech platform, you can access people wherever they are. So I think be able to take people on that longer term journey and get that compounding effect of getting 1% better, that exponential growth path, that is also made possible by being a tech product rather than a traditional in-person intervention. And uh, just picking up on what something is- else you said as well, and I remember in the conversations with your team, um, that, that the people who, who have been helped through university and into a career then can become the mentors at the next stage and the stage after that. And I guess that's, you're talking about exponential uh, sort of 1% compounding in, in terms of experience, but that's the sort of standing on shoulder of giants kind of principle as well, isn't it? That, that if people have found a way through, they'll be even better placed to lead the people coming through behind them. Which, which is where I, I like that standing on the shoulders of giants analogy. It's you no know, mentees turning into mentors and also evangelists for the brand as well. And they're changing perceptions about what's possible in your local community. Um, like, like just thinking about some of the, the stories we've had come out of the platform. That we had um, you know, one uh, one of our members who's called Millie Ayers, who a few years ago uh, got an offer to study at Oxford University. She was originally from a traveling showman background. I grew up just outside London. She dropped out of school when she was 13 to sort of manage the family fairground. Studied her GCSEs at home. So very unconventional education, but a, a type of education quite normal for people in that community. And then she used our platform and worked with a mentor to sort of self-learn Latin and ended up getting an offer to study classics at, at Oxford University. So a completely you know, amazing story. But what that did is you know, Millie's now a mentor herself. She's actually mentored a student into university now for our platform and also her little sister who was younger than her has also joined as a zero gravity member and has just got an offer to study law at oxford university as well so like millie's success not only enabled her to become a mentor and help someone else directly but the kind of culture change she created within the sort of traveling showman community about what's possible also unlocked the potential of other people and i think if, if we can take those kind of microcosm stories and scale that to hundreds of thousands of people, that a cultural ripple effect for that, it creates so much social impact, which you might not be able to track in a traditional social impact model because it's a little bit more intangible and indirect. 
but it does allow you to change the system far quicker than you might have expected otherwise. Do you see your journey, Joe, as being kind of alongside that growth and always being with the organization or will you, you know, could you sell zero gravity or have you not sort of thought of that sort of thing yet? on the same journey as a lot of our members which is yeah. i'm still relatively young i'm 26 yeah. not, not quite yeah. as young as when i started the business but still relatively young yeah hopefully and i'm still struggling with some of these challenges myself you know personally from a business point of view you know, building my network yeah. having experience and mentors around me and that enables me to relate far more to the challenges of our of our users because i i was them back in the day and i'm still struggling with some of the challenges they're facing I think in terms of the future of the, the business, not, I didn't start Zero Gravity to make loads of money, but making it a successful commercial entity as well as a social entity is really important to me yeah. because I think that's how you create sustainable and scalable impact. So I would not be happy if Zero Gravity in three years' time was creating loads of social impact but still wasn't commercially sustainable because that, that would make me feel worried about the long-term future viability of, of what I've built. So I take that aspect like really seriously and, and see that as part of my my core role, that there's no point creating exponential social impact if it all disappears because the organization can't get on a proper commercial footing. And where are you now, you know, in terms of break even or profitability? So um, Ariana was saying that, you know, she's got a couple of years to go until they're at break even and the business model starts working. Where are you? couple of years that I founded the business, we didn't make any revenue whatsoever or, or very low amounts because we yeah. focused on building the product. I mean, the past 12 months has been the first time we've really scaled to having material revenues and having some big contracts now with some of yeah. those commercial partners we work with. Contracts which three or four years ago would have seemed completely unfathomable when, um, when I was first starting the business. I think we we could get to break even if we wanted to, I think within the next 24 months. But to mm. be honest, because we are taking that more tech startup approach, I want to continue scaling the business as quickly as possible. So there is a kind of choice there. You know, do you try and get on a, a firm financial footing earlier, but potentially detract from growth? Yeah. Or do you go for a more quicker growth model, but create a risk that you won't be able to get your um, no cash flow to catch up with your level of growth. Um, so that that's, that is a really tricky decision for I think any founder to make. But I think the problem we're solving is so big. I think that the potential for our solution is also so big that I, I would rather prioritize growth over getting on a, a sound financial footing earlier. So to be honest, Tim, I, I think we'll probably be a loss-making startup probably for at least the next three to four years. And that's yep. a deliberate choice. That That is by design because I, I want to scale zero gravity as quickly as possible. And that does require a lot of investment in R&D to do that. It's really interesting and actually quite refreshing to hear a social entrepreneur speak like that, I think, because Eddie's actually social entrepreneurs are encouraged to be very safe by, particularly by the people who are offering the money, aren't they? And I, I think it, I think it's quite actually quite difficult to think about growth over sustainability sometimes and i think that's um that's been a theme so far today is that a lot of the people who are in their their best endeavors 
are trying to open up that market where finance and uh, and, and impact yeah. meet each other. I, I do tend to come from those conservative backgrounds. That's the point, Joe. You've you've drawn out very eloquently already, and and yeah, yeah trying to get those uh, bigger bigger ticket venture finances in. I, I guess the question, Joe, is, is your investors. Are, are they expecting a big payday at some point, or, or are they all um, signed up and aligned with values that that, that 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 they've got more modest expectations of what they might get as a return? All of our investors are social impact aligned, and many of them are from the same background as our members hmm. back in the day, and that was an important thing for. Yeah. For us to do assemble a, a group of like-minded investors because I, I think that went to the kind of authenticity of the the brand. I wanted to make sure that people understood that the reason we had this commercial model was to drive the social impact rather than the social impact driving the commercial model. I, I didn't want people to see this as kind of like brand washing or social impact washing because the mission mm. is is at the heart of everything we do. Mm. But well, I've also like spoken to investors. I've articulated our proposition on in the same terms as a startup, and I want them to judge us by the same standard, which is in the long term that we can provide an extraordinary return, and that will require time. It requires patient capital. It's not going to happen overnight. But I want to be held to that standard because I believe those business disciplines and disciplines around growth are actually a good thing for our social impact. I think with a business like ours, the social and commercial impact are relatively intertwined. If we can increase the number of students using our platform, increase its efficacy, and create a product that really enables employees and universities to, to hire and admit this talent at scale, that's not just great for social impact, but for commercial impact as well. So I, I don't necessarily see the trade-off between those two things. Like around the edges, sometimes you do yeah. have to be careful. But I think fundamentally... There is that alignment. So I want to be judged in the same way that a traditional tech startup would be judged. I don't want investors to have to see this as I need to sort of sacrifice on my commercial return to do something good. I want them to see this as doing something good by investing in a mission-driven startup that obeys those business disciplines that they look for in their traditional yeah. investments. Yeah, where do you find your investors, Joe? Yeah. Where, where do you find, because, you know, people, Investors aren't growing on trees, um, although there are a lot of people about there with money. But wh- how did you take your first steps towards finding people who would invest in you or even finding people to pitch to? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a real tricky one. When I first came to London five years ago, I had no network of professionals, let alone a network of high net worths. So I had to find a way to build that from scratch. Uh, and I kind of did it in two ways. I think the first way is I, I focused on building a kind of mission-driven brands that really resonated with people. Mm-hmm. And, and by focusing on the brand so early, we were able to get you know, a big organic social media presence and a lot of PR as well. Like even when we were in the first 12 months of launching the business, we were featured in sort of BBC News, The Times, Guardian, The Telegraph. And, and getting that big increase in brand awareness actually sort of turned zero gravity into a magnet where suddenly we had these people you know, coming to us. You know, people who were completely outside my network who I never would be able to reach myself because we were able to build the brand, we created the magnet that drew those people into the zero gravity orbit. 
And then the second thing I did is I just proactively networked. Now, when I met you know, people who, who got in touch and they loved zero gravity and they wanted to invest, and I then worked with them to unlock their own network. Now, who do they know who is also interested in social impact, who be, have something to add to this mission? And I had to be proactive about that. And I, I think that skill around networking is an unfortunate thing that a lot of founders I think I think a lot of people like to think that business success is perfectly meritocratic and and <laughs> due to the virtues of the idea and the strategy and the execution. If you're not a good networker and you don't have a network, it's very difficult to grow an equity-backed business because so much of early stage fundraising is network driven. So you have to develop those skills as a founder, relentlessly build your network to get access to the capital you need in order to grow. It's a bit ironic, I guess, because the very mission that you have is to sort of uh, work against the kind of old school network, isn't it? And actually, you're finding that you need to de- develop your own your own network, similar sort of network, just to find the financial support and other business support to allow you to grow. I think it's a big philosophical question for any social entrepreneur, which is, do you try and disrupt the system from the inside? Or do you try and revolt from the outside? And I think when I was weighing up this uh, decision, I thought, at least when you're getting started, it's very difficult to do anything but disrupt from the inside because the world is the way it is. And if you if, if you don't want to raise capital from angel investors and from venture capital funds and you're just kind of you know, making a big song and dance of we're not going to do this because we philosophically don't believe in the system – you're not going to get anywhere very fast. And then your entire mission is undermined by definition. So I believe it's much easier to disrupt from the inside. And then when you get to a big enough scale, it's kind of on you as an organization to then try and reshape the system to meet your worldview. But I think that's very difficult to do when you're a kind of bedroom bootstrapped startup. I don't think you should let your kind of morals and philosophy Mm. get in the way of progress and growth. Very wise words from... 26 year old social entrepreneur there which uh, I don't think I would have uh, been able to think or articulate myself in the way that you have done um, 25 years ago so (laughs) it's really good to hear from you Joe and um, thanks very much indeed for sharing your thoughts. Just with that community aspect though that you have as part of your mission that I guess that that is the the, the built-in network of the people coming through as well isn't it? They're building their network while they're coming through with you. So hopefully they don't need the old school. It'll be the new school network instead. I think if we can get a critical mass of people from low opportunity backgrounds into these elite institutions, those networks will start to feel very, very different. And and that is the kind of multiplier effect behind the, the business. As you both look at working with VCs and private investors, how do you ensure both of you that um, the private investors you're working with, who essentially will end up owning part of your business, um, that they maintain the values and that you want to maintain and you've enshrined at the very beginning? Something that doesn't get said enough is that founders and people who uh, people who are choosing essentially, you do have a choice as to whose money you accept. And I think that the more founders actively choose to take money from good sources and sources that 
care deeply about the impact, actually the better the world's going to be because then those are the institutions and people who are going to get wealthier. Then more money is going to go into good places. But right now that's not what's happening. Um, uh, you know, the, the impact is not at the core of the majority of the world's money. And this is actually one of the reasons why the world is in such an awful state because the people who you know so so I think it really the best thing founders can do is ask I always say to investors where does your money come from who are your LPs what do what are they looking for please show me the proposals that you've given to them like I want to see what as a as a vet you know as a VC fund I want to see what they are being promised and I want to know who they are as well and there are funds we've said no to because I don't like or agree with where the money comes from or who the money is owned by and I think if more founders actively made that choice actively asked Funds are shocked when I ask I ask them where their money comes from. And I think it should be the most basic, obvious question, because where money comes from, that's what's going to grow and that's what's going to gain more 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 power. So um, I don't know what you think about that, Joe. There are social impact funds out there that have a kind of social impact brands, but the way they invest, their incentive structures are typical <laughs> of the VC market. Yeah. And then you have other social impact funds where actually the kind of tilt or focus towards social impact is enshrined into the way the fund operates, whether it's a, a capped earnings model if a fund doesn't reach its social impact targets or no bonuses on the base of no social return on investment, not just uh, commercial return on investment. So I think you can also like understand these funds from their structures as well as the kind of motivations of the people mm -hmm. uh, behind them. And I think because of the ESG movement, this has now become a kind of frothy sector from a brand point of view. So you probably do have to be a little bit more discerning when trying to work out what the true motivations of some of these funds are. And, and on the, the flip side of that, do they, I mean, VC type money is always very good at um, wanting to step in if the money's not looking right, but do they hold you your feet to the fire on the impact side and reserve the right to uh, exert an influence over the business if you're not delivering that side? So I wish more funds would. Um, a good example of a fund that's doing that is Bethnal Green Ventures. Uh, they actively need their portfolio to hit their impact targets. Um, we have to submit various reports. Um, they actively encourage things like IMPs and theory of changes. And, you know, they've got a whole lot of impact work that they want their portfolio to do. And that's great. But they don't, you know, there's not many funds that really hold your feet over the fire and I think they should <laughs> I really do like unfortunately at the end of the day um, we are in an economic crisis and so so you know the impact side has you know taken a bit of a hit when people are like mm -hmm. ah well can't be as you know we can't take as many risks now as if that is the riskier route um, so so yeah our funds are fantastic uh, but I really wish more funds would be strict like that. Hmm. And it's interesting you should mention the risk side as well. I guess they don't look at the risk that you won't, uh, they, they should look at the risk that you won't actually achieve your impact objectives as being the risk, um, just as much as losing the money. But that's that's not the way the world's built at the moment. Exactly. It's not the way the world's built. And I think 
you know, this has to come from, uh, there's so much that needs to be done to change the structure of, I mean, really, we're looking at whole systems change, basically. Um, and, you know, a few founders and a few campaigns and one policy isn't necessarily going to do that. But I think if everyone came together who cared about this and we actively changed regulation, we, you, you know, the, 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 at government level, you could change regulations around how funds deploy um, what they, you know, the, the structure of funds. And, and it, it quite honestly could change the world. But we're not doing that because at government level, they don't care enough about this. And it's quite frankly, inexcusable because this is something that could change the world. All of these VC funds have such expertise in the capital allocation, um, high growth, scaling, all the challenges that come along with that. And then a lot of the kind of charity funders have expertise in kind of like you know, risk management and, and sort of theories of change. And I think there's an opportunity to bring those two sides together, which is, you know, can VCs get foundations and trusts to take a more kind of venture philanthropy approach of, of funding more kind of high risk R&D social impact projects that have the ability in the long term to generate a huge amount of social impact, but might be a little bit more risky and their traditional portfolio of mm. uh, sort of nice, friendly, cuddly charities. But on the flip side, can the trusts and foundations sort of educate the VCs more about actually having a broader view of what impact might might look like? So I think those two parts of the funding sector really need to come together. I think this is the key time because the big technological trends that everyone's so excited about is artificial intelligence. And I think everyone can see that there are huge potentials of applying that technology to drive social impact, not just returns for investors. So I, I think every single trust and foundation has to be thinking about now, what is our future strategy going to be for funding the next generation of AI innovations to solve some of these social challenges. But I'm, I'm worried the trust and foundations don't have the expertise internally to make those capital allocation decisions, whilst the VCs actually might be better set up to do that kind of thing because of their background. So I think bringing those two sectors together has never been more important. If we don't get that right, there's going to be a huge funding gap in this sector, which continues into the future. And we're going to miss out on so many incredible social enterprises and social entrepreneur-driven startups. Um, so thanks very much indeed, both of you, Joe and Ariana, for uh, being with us on the Fit for the Future podcast. Um, very many thanks to both of you. And uh, it's a Goodbye from me and goodbye from Eddie. See you next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Tim. This has been Fit for the Future with me, Eddie Finch. And me, Tim West. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and please feel free to share your thoughts via email at hello at pioneerspost.com or on Twitter at Pioneers Post and at Buzzercott. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.